our third stage in Armageddon. Those are just the first two of eight stages. Uh, most of the stages aren't that long and complicated though. This one, for example, is a bit shorter. Uh, the third stage is the conquest of Jerusalem. In response to hearing that, the, uh, that Babylon has been destroyed, the Antichrist will mobilize his army against Jerusalem. In Zechariah 12, we read, Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. Now, this is important because people might ask, wait, isn't Jerusalem in Judah? And the answer is yes. And this is not saying that it's going to be around all of Judah. But Judah, the remnant, the tents of Judah, are not currently in Jerusalem. The people, remember, have been taken out and uh, supernaturally protected in the land of Petra. So the siege is going to come against Jerusalem and those inhabitants of Judah, which have been supernaturally protected in Petra. Uh, we're going to look at that in more detail because Jerusalem is only the first stage of the Antichrist's attack. There will be probably more Jews in Petra than in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, but he is going to come against Jerusalem, and then he is going to make his way south to Basra, which is the greater area of Petra. So this is where he attacks. He moves slightly south. I think it's about 14 miles from, uh, from the Valley of Jezreel into Jerusalem, lays, lays siege of the city. In Zechariah 12.3, it says, It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In Micah 4.11, it says, And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, Let her be polluted, and let your eyes gloat over Zion but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord and they do not understand his purpose for he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. So remember I said, they don't understand that they are acting in God's will by acting in these um, demonically inspired by these demonically inspired spirits. Uh, yes, they have a malicious intention, but God is going to use their malicious intention for their own destruction. And that is God's will. So Zechariah 12.4 says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts their God. Now notice, once again, we have a distinction between the clans of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. These are not synonymous in this case because the, or the clans of Judah are not currently dwelling in Judah. They're dwelling in Basra, uh, but they are looking at what is happening supernaturally in Jerusalem. They look and they see that the Lord is supernaturally protecting Jerusalem and its people, that God is not only dumbfounding the uh, armies of the Antichrist, but he's also supernaturally uh, increasing the strength and power of those Jews in Jerusalem. 
In Zechariah 12, 6, it says, In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. In verse 8, notice we're skipping a verse here because we're going to come back to that in a second. Um, it's very important for the interpretation here. Uh, verse 7 is, uh, but this is the backstory here. Um, in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in the day, in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, uh, like the angel of the Lord before them. So notice um, a few verses back, it said that, uh, or the nations were saying to the weak that they would call themselves strong. Well, here it's saying that those who are weak will be made stronger, and those who are made, those who are strong will be made yet stronger by God. Uh, this is speaking of how God will supernaturally enhance the abilities of these Jewish people. Um, I think of the movie, uh, what is that, Rocket Man, where he's uh, trying to lift a car off of someone and he says, uh, call me mommy, and uh, he's able to lift it off. Um, I don't know, that might be an old reference. I'm not that old though. But uh, anyways, they will be supernaturally, uh, or their ability to uh, fight for the city of Jerusalem will be supernaturally enhanced. Uh, okay, I read this one. All right, in Micah 4.13, uh, they will be used by God uh, once he has enhanced their strength. It says, arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. So notice that the Lord has a purpose, not only in bringing these armies against Jerusalem, but also in strengthening Jerusalem. His purpose in strengthening Jerusalem is to crush the armies of the Antichrist. It's not specifically to protect those people. He will protect those people, but they are protected through fire. Um, two thirds of them will die um, during this battle. He is not keeping them all alive because they are not all in faith. Um, so here in Zechariah 13, we read, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish but the third will be left in it. So despite the increased strength of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, two thirds of them will still uh, perish in this altercation. In Micah 5.1, we see the current leader of Jerusalem will also be uh, defeated. It says, now muster yourselves in troops, daughters, daughter of troops, uh, they have laid siege against us with a rod. They will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. The judge of Israel is a, uh, what is that? An, a euphemism for the ruler or the leader or the king of Israel at that time. Could say the president of Israel at that time. Uh, and to smite him on the cheek uh, is a term used in Jewish poetry to indicate a death blow uh, to this uh, leader of Jerusalem, or this leader of, yeah, this leader of Jerusalem. So their leader will be uh, killed, 
and two-thirds of those fighting for Jerusalem will be killed. But God does leave a remnant, and that remnant is the remnant which will be fully converted to faith. Um, it's that two-thirds that would not come to uh, faith in the Messiah that are cut off. It says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And then in Zechariah 12, 7, it says, The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. So this is that missing verse that I pulled out and said, it's going to be important. Why is Jerusalem allowed to fall? It's allowed to fall because God is going to save the tents of Judah first, that remnant that he has pulled out of Judah and has dwelling temporarily in Petra. That's why these, this remnant is dwelling in tents, not permanent houses, uh, because their protection in Basra, in Petra, is only temporary. So the Antichrist army comes against Jerusalem, conquers Jerusalem, though they have a tough time of doing so. Uh, they are victorious in taking Jerusalem. One third of those uh, Jerusalemites are going to be left in the city, while the army of the Antichrist, or at least uh, one portion of them, are brought down uh, just a bit further south to Petra to wage war against uh, the remaining Israelites who are supernaturally protected in, uh, in Basra. Now, it might be because of the, uh, the success in this war against Jerusalem that the Antichrist thinks he has uh, the ability to come against uh, Petra and have any success. We know from Revelation 12 that uh, at the midpoint of the tribulation, he has no success in chasing after these uh, these Jews who have fled into the wilderness um, and who are protected by God, he might think that he has a chance now that he has taken Jerusalem. Uh, he might think God has abandoned Jerusalem or uh, abandoned Israel. Many of these passages in the uh, prophets that we've looked at in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, um, God is saying that um, he has not forsaken his people and this will prove it. Uh, that, will, that might be a future response to the Antichrist who thinks God has forsaken his people by allowing Jerusalem to fall. However, there is another option. Uh, the Antichrist may move against Petra because he realizes that his time is short, and if the Lord returns, um, his time is over. Uh, and so despite his uh, previous failures, he might think, act now or act never. Um, so he is coming against uh, Petra at this point. Now, Petra is a little, uh, right? it's not that little, but it's comparatively a little city inside the rocky cliffs of Basra. Uh, We're going to spend a lot more time on this next time, this area of Basra, because this is the location of the return of Christ, not to the Mount of Olives, but to Petra itself. Um, and then he will fight the armies of the Antichrist northward to the Mount of Olives and ascend up the Mount of Olives. Uh, 
but he will initially return to Basra. In Micah 2.12, it says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, like a flock in the midst of its pastures, and they will be noisy with men. This is speaking of that supernatural protection of Israel in these crags of Basra. Revelation 12.6 tells us about this. It says, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. The second half of the tribulation period, the great uh, tribulation, or what is it? Um, Jacob's great tribulation. I can't remember the exact phrase right now. Matthew 24, Jesus tells us about this. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through, the, through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So it's a mountainous area, and it's an area in the wilderness, uh, and that has only one possible uh, or one probable location, and that is the mountain range of Basra in the wilderness of Edom, south of uh, south of Jerusalem, it says, for I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra will become an object of horror, a reproach, a ruin, and a curse, and all its cities will become a perpetual ruin. Uh, that has not happened yet. It will happen in the last days, and it will happen at the time of the Antichrist's invasion into um, Edom, into Basra, and into the city of Petra, but it's at that place and at that location that the Lord will return and slay the Antichrist um, and then chase the Antichrist armies northward. Um, so those are the first four stages of Armageddon. Those take place before Israel's uh, regeneration. They're all preparatory to it. They all bring Israel to faith. So there, the next stage that we'll start with next time is that national regeneration of Israel. It's when the Antichrist has defeated Jerusalem and he is surrounding them in Petra that they will look to not just God, but to the anointed one of God, the Messiah of God, Jesus Christ, to save them. Uh, at that time, they will be regenerated. Uh, they will spend two days confessing their national sin of rejecting the Messiah. On the third day, they will call for the Lord to return as their king, and he will do so. Uh, so the second coming of the Messiah will be to uh, the mountains of Edom. He will fight the Antichrist and the Antichrist's armies. He will chase them up north to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, uh, and he will destroy them there, and then ascend up the Mount of Olives in victory, um, as the seventh bowl is poured out and the end of all things uh, comes. So those are what we look forward to in the next study. And that is, uh, that is the first four stages of Armageddon while Israel is in unbelief and the cause of their coming to faith. Uh, so are there any questions? I have one if nobody else has one. Go for it. Okay, so we know Israel is the Israelites. Yeah. But in this time frame, mm -hmm. who is Babylon? Like, who actually is living there? What people? What 
nations, right? If we get the 10 kings that come together, right? Yeah. And the, the kingdoms of the East come down. But, but like in today's world, who is it going to be then in the future when that battle comes? It's not Russia. Russia's already been defeated in the time of the Agog War, right? So yeah. who's actually there coming down to attack Israel? Is it a bunch of Arabs that have gotten powerful between now and then and created some new country? I mean, just what, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, looks like the, uh, uh, so you're asking which ones come against Israel or which ones come against Babylon? Well, I wanted to, who's Babylon is first question. Uh, Babylon is modern day, uh, can't remember the name of it. Uh, well, it's in, I'm losing my geography here. Um, it's either Iraq or Iran right now, and it's near the capital city of one of them. Let's see. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, yeah. So we've been. I think we've kind of deduced that Babylon's from Iraq, right? Yes. So are we saying that the Iraqi people of today end up, you know, Al Qaeda or or whoever it is that takes over, uh, ends up growing into such a powerful nation? No. Middle Eastern battles, it's nobody else. Yeah. I mean so Middle Eastern Middle Eastern people, I mean. Uh I think it's most helpful to look at um future Babylon as something like modern day Brussels. Um Brussels is not a very large nation itself, but it's incredibly powerful because it's the center of uh, the European Union. Uh Babylon will be functioning a lot like modern day EU in Brussels. Uh, nations from all around the world will have representatives there, will have people there. They'll have an army of their own. Um, and it's just like Brussels isn't made primarily of the people of Brussels, uh, but the people of all of Europe. Um, so Babylon in that day will be made of the people of the whole world because it's going to be the center of world government. So, uh, it could be like uh, New York in the UN uh, where people from all over the world uh, are there because it's a hub for all of the world. Um, I don't even think uh, the Antichrist himself will be Iraqi. Uh, he'll probably be Assyrian, just uh, from some passages Isaiah that seem, they're the only passages to identify his nationality. Okay, so then we think about the time frame of where we are now, yeah. and how long it would take for Babylon and Iraq to become the center, basically, of, of world government. Yeah, I mean, I know things are happening really fast right now, right? I mean, things are at a stage where we would, have, you know, two or three years ago, we would never imagine we're at the stage we're at now with all mass mandate and control and yeah, you know, all the stuff that's going on. But it seems to me that you know, sometimes I sit here or myself and go, yeah, maybe I'll be around actually for <laughs> the, the second coming of Christ and and all this but then i start thinking about how much time would actually have to take for babylon and iraq to become this you know center of a world government yeah. and and it seems very far away to me um yes and no i mean it could take a long time uh but it also might not take a long time especially as uh as we look at how fast things move nowadays and know that it's probably only going to be moving faster the closer we get to it and that's part of that birth pains thing that it's not that uh, it happens quickly in our time frame, but that things start to happen um, with shorter gaps in between. Uh, that said, 
um, all we need is a catalyst. Uh, a catalyst for world government could be the rapture of the church when thousands, millions, perhaps even a billion people disappear from the earth. That's going to be a disaster or viewed as a disaster from this earth far more than anything like Corona ever was. Uh, so that might uh, be the catalyst that leads to this world governance. We know from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that the beginning of this uh, reign of the Antichrist is really with the signing of a peace treaty in Israel that's going to allot Israel uh, freedom to have their land, to be in their land, and uh, to be at peace in their land. It's going to come after the Gog-Magog War, which itself is probably going to rearrange the land, uh, the landscape of the Middle East and the national powers there. Uh, the, it, it's going to be essentially a world war um, and then a natural disaster on top of it. The first four seals, the first four seal judgments, uh, I think are the best explanation for how um, Babylon consolidates its power. Um, it's going to come in peace and then it's going to come in war. Once it gets a hold of the economy, it's going to squish or squash um, the any opposition by controlling uh, economy and trade and trade routes, uh, money, all of that. And what's going to come from that is going to be economic famine and death and disease and, and all that comes with that. So I think the first three and a half years is really that consolidation of Babylon's government. Uh, that said, I don't think um, I don't think we're going to be here to see it. Not just because I think the majority of it's going to happen during the tribulation period. Uh, we've seen what can happen in three and a half years. Uh, but yeah. even if it does establish itself before the tribulation period, uh, the tribulation does not begin with the rapture of the church. The tribulation begins with the signing of a peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel, uh, because the Antichrist is going to act as if he is. Uh, he is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant to Israel. Uh, their covenant is to have that full tract of land from God. Uh, a king over them, who is their Messiah, they may accept him as their Messiah, uh, and uh, that they will have, uh, well, the new covenant, I think they think has already been enacted in them, but it's going to take away all the iniquity of Israel as well, and then they will live in permanent peace because of the new covenant. So he comes promising land, uh, rulership, freedom from their enemies, and peace uh, among them. This Antichrist is coming, offering all of the uh, clauses of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, so he is acting as a false messiah to them. Um, so that begins the tribulation period. The rapture can happen any time before that. It could happen 30 years before a contract is signed between them. Uh, and the nation of Babylon could be born after the rapture, spend 30 years growing before it amasses enough power to sign a contract with Israel. Uh, we don't know exactly. All we know is that we're not going to be here for that signing of the contract. So it makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a really good question, I think. Uh, and that that uh, really goes back to the doctrine of imminency. Even Paul expected that the rapture could happen in his day. Uh, he was anticipating it. The first century uh, Jewish Christians, before even the Sumerian, uh, the Sumerians and the Gentiles were brought into the fold of the church, 
they expected the Lord's return and they were encamping around Jerusalem waiting for him to come back. Uh, they so expected it to happen. Uh, we can be just as expectant that the Lord will return in our day and age. And we don't really need to see any of the geopolitical uh, characters lining up. Um, he could take us today and the world could spend a hundred years preparing for the tribulation period because the church uh, is only a parenthesis in the calendar of God's dealing with Israel. Uh, if the church is not here, God will still save people because the church isn't the only way to save people. In fact, the church doesn't save people. People are saved into the church. Uh, when the church is gone, people will still be saved the same way they were in the Old Testament. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know that what you just said there really makes a lot of sense because I have not actually thought because before the study, I was always kind of a mid-tripper myself. Since doing the study with you, you know, obviously we're leaning towards what you're believing with pre-trib, but I never, I always kind of associated with the rapture being like right before the seven-year tribulation period. But when right. you're saying it could be a hundred years before that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It could be 30 years before the tribulation. Does it mean it's, you know, right before the seven-year tribulation, the rapture? Yeah. And I, I think a lot of the uh, difficulty for people coming to that conclusion, because uh, nothing in scripture says that it has to be in conjunction with that seven year. And that's why things like the book of Revelation don't deal with the tribulation or the uh, rapture, because it actually is not a, uh, it's a prerequisite, but it's not a, um, it's not a factor in the seven year tribulation. It's just something that will happen before it. Um, but because we are in the church age, um, we tend to overemphasize the importance of the church in God's plan. Now, it is incredibly important, um, but we often tend to make it the most important thing in God's redemptive plan. Uh, God's mo the most important thing in God's redemptive plan is the uh, redemption of Israel, because we are only a foretaste of that redemption that will happen in Israel. And if they never receive their, um, their regeneration, then we have no hope in our future glorification, because we stake it on the same promises as they do. Um, so if God's not faithful to his promises to Israel, we have no promise that he'll be faithful to us in his promises of where we're going when we die. Um, so I think to overemphasize the church over and against Israel uh, is really self-defeating. I have one more. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Okay. Satan obviously knows mm -hmm. God's word, the scripture. Yeah. Right. And he always takes a little bit of a twist on it a spin on it <clears throat> to try to apply it the way he wants or to deceive somebody or whatever. Right. Yeah. So if he knows, you know, you wrap your head, trying to wrap your head around, if he knows what's coming mm -hmm. and he sees what the scripture says, yeah. then why does he, you know, go down the path that's already foretold to us in the scripture instead of trying to do something different? Because it's, you understand this, the circular thought process there? Yes. Uh, I think the answer is in Ezekiel 28. Speaks of what happened to Satan when he fell. Uh, or actually what led to his fall. Uh, let's see, 28. Ezekiel 28, 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Uh, his hubris 
gets in the way of his wisdom. Um, he is smart, he is intelligent, but he is not wise. Uh, and it takes wisdom to handle the word of God, uh, not just intelligence. And that's why we see many college professors not accepting the word of God because they are smart, uh, but they're not wise. Yeah. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, Satan does not fear the Lord. So he is not wise. His wisdom is corrupted uh, because in Isaiah, 15, uh, Isaiah 14, it says um, he thinks he can elevate himself above the throne of God. Um, he is self-deluded and in so being self-deluded, self-defeating because he walks right into, uh, right into his destruction thinking, uh, like an insane person, that he is going to be able to, uh, to uh, counteract the word of God. And it has a lot to do with uh, the little importance that he puts on the word of God. You can see in how he speaks with Eve and also in how he speaks with Jesus at the temptation uh, that he doesn't actually put much stake in God's word. He doesn't trust it. He doesn't believe it. He finds it something to manipulate for his own purposes. Um, it's going to be in the manipulation of that, that he thinks he can succeed. Um, the way I, I just kind of imagine, like, what, what in the heck is he thinking? Uh, I think he might think he's pretty smart in realizing uh, crushing Israel uh, keeps Jesus from coming back, because until they accept him, he doesn't come back. Uh, that's the kind of corrupt wisdom and corrupt logic that I think his hubris leads him to act on. Yeah, that makes total sense. Great answer. All right, looks like there's a chat in here too. Cliff is asking, uh, when laws become irrelevant, powerful and lawless people can use their wealth and power to do things quickly too. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think in the, uh, the wars that come after the beginning of the tribulation, uh, things are gonna be able to move really fast because, uh, well, for one, war makes money. Uh, People uh, are able to allocate money towards war causes. Um, I think the Antichrist is going to use that. Uh, and he can, he can build a, a center for that war, uh, the Third World War. Cliff says, additionally, the plan we see unfolding in scripture relating to the end times is the best possible plan that men and demons could concoct against the omnipotent God. Yeah, doing anything less than what God has revealed would be even less efficient. Even if Satan didn't know what scripture says, if he was trying to enact the best possible hope he has to usurp God, uh, the serpent could do no better than what was laid out in the word. Yeah, he's got a good point that uh, God's telling us what's going to happen. Uh, and it's unlikely that, uh, that they would be able to come up with any better plan because there is no hope, no possibility of defeating God. Uh, so they are actually, like, if you look at what the Antichrist's uh, government is doing to try to crush God, yeah, it's their best hope. But even their best hope has no hope. Uh, they do understand that the only way to cut off Jesus is to cut off Israel, but they don't understand that Israel can't just be cut off because God has promised that they won't. And God's word uh, has to come true because um, well, God is all powerful. His word is elevated above his name. Um, he will bring his word to pass. And I think that's unfortunate that a lot of the church doesn't hold much stake in God's word today either. 
And that's why they don't pay much attention to prophecy because they don't trust it. Uh, I think we'd have a lot, we'd be in a lot better situation if more Christians spent more time in the prophetic parts of scripture, um, studying that out because it's a lot of work for just a few people to be doing. All right. If there are no other questions, uh, I might have us close now and uh, we'll come back next week to finish out um, finish out the campaign of Armageddon. So I'll pray for us to close. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the trustworthiness of all that you have said. Uh, we thank you that uh, we have this ability to look forward into the future, not because we are intelligent, uh, but because uh, we trust your word, because we spend time in it. We come to know you through it. We know that everything you say is trustworthy and that you will bring all the things that you say uh, to fulfillment. So when we uh, do just a bit of work on our end, uh, we can come to understand what it is you've said. And all that remains after that is to believe it. Uh, so we thank you that you've given us an understandable uh, word that you have spoken to us understandably. Uh, we apologize for our efforts to try to make that something it's not, to try to to fit our ideas of how it should be. Uh, we ask that by the means of the Holy Spirit, you open our hearts to receive your word at face value, uh, to understand it for what it is, to understand it for the hope that it should give us. Uh, we pray that that hope uh, work actively in our lives to edify us as we await uh, the soon return of your son. And we pray for as many to enter into faith as uh, as as possible uh, before that happens, because we don't want anyone unnecessarily to have to, un, uh, to, have to go through uh, what we are studying here in the book of Revelation. We hope that all could come to a saving faith of Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. Thank you.